Chapter 37 of Colonel Greatheart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Ullman. Chapter 37 The King Turns with his kerchief tight about his arm and a bloody scrap of his shirt bound over his forehead captain Pierre came back to sir thomas fairfax he had hardly told his tale amid exclamations from the lieutenant-general before colonel rich was announced who entered with rolling eyes crying sharp arrows of the mighty yea very coals of juniper oh my threshing and the corn of my floor stop your fooling the lieutenant-general thundered make your excuse i find sir you have your deserts quoth fairfax yea verily i have lean among the pots the earth mourneth and fadeth away the inhabitants thereof where is your regiment even as chafed from the threshing floor which fairfax raised his voice god god even when the sergeant came in a hurry Take his sword, take him away. Break their teeth, O oh God, Colonel Rich ejaculated and was hurried out. Look to your hurts, Dick, said Fairfax to his nephew, and when he, too, was gone, turned to Cromwell. So much for zeal. You have me upon the hip, sir, and seeking a cool head, troubled by no godly fervor, they pitched upon Colonel Royston and sent him with his dragoons to the outpost, and slept sound. Truly, in the two armies, they could hardly have found a man less fanatic or more devoted to the right rules of war. On the next day, the minister came with this letter. To the right honorable Sir Thomas Fairfax, General of the Army of the Parliament, at fastest booth, Thursday. Sir, there is in your army a Colonel Rich, which, taking my men prisoners in open fight, threatened after to hang them to which i answered i would hang him two for one i have not been constrained to this however broken colonel rich to-night this is to advise you that if others of your commanders attempt the like we shall answer them according to the custom of war but i have no fear that sir thomas fairfax will put us to such necessity your excellency servant j snow then the minister told his tale, and Sir Thomas Fairfax swore and was not reproved. By God, sir, the man outdoes us on all counts, he cried. We are dunces to him in tactics and in chivalry. Who is he, this J. Stowe? And the minister told what he knew. Faith, I am heartily sorry for him. It must be gall to a good soldier to stomach the king's strategies. Fairfax laughed a grim and i should use a score of him why could he not come to us sir i was granted enlightenment in last night's watches the lord designs true men to fight against his cause lest we that be his champion should sink in the wanton pride of our own natural sin fairfax clapped him on the shoulder by my soul sir it is a refreshment to hear a preacher declare a man honest who will not listen to him so this j stowe was a friend once of our colonel royston eh and we have matched friend for friend there should be some pretty fighting in that colonel royston hath gone 
something beyond me said the minister his simplicity could not explain the wife but fighting between the friends there was none the king's army was hurried suddenly out of reach rupert had his own way for nearly three days and made as far northward as he could his hope laid in the border countries where the men were a hundred years or more behind the south and east were still half soldiers in their daily life and thought a puritan mad he had not come much beyond daventry when my lord digby brought forth a new plan as clear as euclid and the king listened and tarried the eastern countries said my lord digby were the greatest magazine of puritan strength to take that magazine was to strike the puritans with palsy why then it was plain the army must march eastward at once Quaderat demonstrandum. So the campaign was changed, and Rupert swore to the king's face they would all be damned for it, and got nearly to blows with my lord Digby and went off to drink himself drunk. The thing was plain folly to a soldier's eye, no less than driving a weak army against the strongest rampart of the foe. Not Caesar himself could have snatched success out of it. Rupert did not try. He threw up the game. He surrendered to despair. The army was let go its own way and soon were a mere scattered horde of brigands. The ingenious Digby had no power to control the reckless troopers, and Rupert sulked and soaked in his tent. Tidings of it came to Fairfax, and he made what haste he could. He might have flung his cavalry at the midst of the thin cloud of the foe and ended it with one charge but he could hardly believe that the army was as ill-ordered as his spy said, and he came cautiously. He had met Rupert fighting before, and he lingered for more strength. But at last Rupert sat by his wine in a tavern of Daventry. The news came that the Puritan outposts were close in sight. He roused himself from the kindly stupor that eased the pain of his despair, and set men galloping with fierce orders to draw the army together. He was in time. The best of the scattered regiments could still obey him, and they mustered, heavy with spoil, in the old fortress of turf that crowns Burrow Hill. The king was brought from his hawking in Fallsley Park. With the Puritan full in sight and the peril of battle instant, Rupert had his way with him. They should march north again. It was the last chance, for they were outnumbered nearly two to one. So they made off by Market Hardborough, but Fairfax was following hard. In the twilight of summer's evening, Ireton dashed into the village of Nasby and caught a score of Rupert's horsemen at ease in their inn. By midnight, Rupert knew that their vanguard was upon him. There was no choice but to fight. It was over high ground, treeless, broken with firs and rabbit holes, that the battle was set in the morning. The Puritans were posted upon a hill where long open slopes should spend the force of the fiercest horsemen. Their footmen were hidden behind the brow. Their horsemen were upon either wing. In the like water, pikemen and musketeers in the midst. Rupert's horse on the right, sir marmaduke langdale's on the left the royal army came on but the king lingered with a reserve of horse and foot some way behind the chance of battle 
No man ever denied the Cavaliers a relish for fight. They came with good heart and steadfastly, like a moving wall of men, blue and green and white, pointed with a gray gleam of steel, and as they marched on with the wind that held their banners straight against the foe, the Puritans came forward over the brow of the hill, a sturdy block of scarlet. They were singing, I in the Lord do put my trust. How is it, then, that ye say to my soul, Flee as a bird, unto your mountains high? For, lo, the wicked bend their bow, their shafts on string they fit, that those who upright are in heart they privily may hit. Then Rupert, away on the right in his red Montero cop, very sparkish as was his habit in battle, set his horsemen to the trot, and with a thunderous roar of Queen Marie they charged. The June sunshine was broken with dense white clouds. The earth quaked to the boom of the guns, but Fairfax had no faith in his raw artillerymen, and he was right. The gun's target was the Skylarks, and the royal footmen were within musket range before they had much to endure. Rupert fell upon the Puritan horsemen where Ireton, the commissary general, had command, and to say truth had not his men in hand. For some regiments broke ground to meet the cavaliers and fired too soon. Some hung back, and Rupert, coming on at the best of his speed with squadrons locked knee to knee, crashed upon them in one mass with one storm of pistol shots, and broke them utterly and hurled on in the chase. He was over the hill crest with the Puritans in wild rout before him. He was drunk with the spirit of the charge and mad himself as the wildest trooper, as the youngest horse, and he sped on after the rout, careless of the main battle. Soon all his men were scattered, ranging wide over the moor in a hundred little forays. Here and there a colonel cried, the rally and trumpets blared, but the most of them took no heed. Colonel Stowe got a grip of the best of his squadrons. By my faith, General, this is the way to lose battles, said he, and they formed again, resting their blown horses, came slowly back to the main battle. Not without pain, there was a long hedge parting the moor from tilled fields, while Rupert surged by Colonel Royston, whose dragoons ill-mounted little men could not stand the shock of a charge took ground there and the bushes were lined with shot as the cavaliers came back they were taken by a flank fire upon the other wing the puritans had been happier cromwell held his troops till sir marmaduke langdale's horsemen were weary with toiling uphill then crashed down on them and in one sharp shock broke all their strength the charge was hardly won before his trumpets were sounding the recall, and the sternly schooled troopers turned from executing the enemies of the Lord to form upon their standards. Three regiments Cromwell spared to press the pursuit. With the rest he turned to the main battle. There was a mad melee. The king's musketeers advancing had waited to fire, but one valley before they fell on with sword and butt. They charged with the pikemen, and the lines were locked in conflict. With blind hacking and hooing, 
and sheer thrusting breast upon breast in the press reeking panting company strove and the fortune of the fight swayed to and fro in the full of the gay june sunshine they were wrapped with an acrid cloud of powder smoke and dust and the reeling standards rose out of it weirdly skippon was struck down in the mist the left of the puritans gave round and there the king's men flung themselves upon the second line if rupert had been at hand nasby fight could have been another end but for rupert there was only the few squadrons with colonel stow and though they charged their best they could not weigh enough to turn the issue while they drew off weary and spent colonel royston mounted his dragoons and ventured them upon the broken ranks they made no bad charge of it and colonel stow brought only a remnant to where the king lingered with the reserve before that conrad had come upon infantry hardly supporting an equal fight the king's men were in no case to bear the shock of a hundred score ironside troopers through the wall of pikes before them they could not break against the swarm of heavy horsemen they could not stand they were smitten like corn under the scythe. whole regiments were struck with panic and cast down their arms and screamed for quarter until but one stood unbroken then fairfax who had hacked and hewed like a common trooper all the fight through came with his regiment upon their front cromwell charged them from the rear the sturdy rank went down in ruin the army was all undone the king had no footmen left and rupert rupert's horsemen were overspread half a dozen miles each little party hunting its own prey rupert himself with not much more than a troop bore down on nasby village a mile away where fairfax's train of baggage waited then the captain of the baggage guard seeing one in habit like the general in a red montero as the general had took him for fairfax and rode out to ask the fortune of the day so well that i'll give you quarter cried rupert the puritan with an objurgation out of scripture galloped back to his men and they welcomed rupert with a volley he had not enough men to stand for a charge so at last he drew rein and thought of a rally it was a life too late when his horsemen began to straggle back into the battle there was but one army left and the king when cromwell turned upon the footmen the king still had his reserves to cast into the fight but still the squadrons that had won back with colonel stow shattered but daring yet there were more than one man about him who cried with colonel stow charge sir in god's name charge for your cause and the little brigade was ready king charles rode out to share their desperate fortunes to dare for his own doom but as he came he saw on the hill above cromwell's troopers storm deathly in the charge and he faltered then a faithful courtier my lord carnworth snatched his bridle crying will you go to your death and the king whose army was smitten before his eyes gave himself to a savior files by the right cried my lord carnworth and the king's guard bore away 
Colonel Stow looked after him with a crooked smile. There goes the worst friend the king ever had, he said. So through the fall of this summer day, the king rode hard in flight, and behind him men who cared more for his honor than he spent themselves to save him. While the king, scathless of any mark of fight, sat down to dine in Leicester, some few scattered troops of his horse turned and turned again in desperate charge to stay the surge of Cromwell's pursuit. Utterly weary, bleeding, and out of heart, they hurled themselves upon the Ironside ranks, desperate in their soldierly honor as the Puritans in their faith. They did their part. They saved their king while they cursed him. But when night fell, there was hardly a man of them could call to his fellow. Reeling in the saddle of a stumbling horse, Colonel Stow drew rein in the dark. He had no man left to accompany him. All his regiments were spent and dead. He staggered to the shelter of a hedge and lay with blood stiff upon his wounds. In a comfortable chamber at Longborough, King Charles wrote a letter to his wife, complaining of the conduct of his army. End of chapter 37 Recording by Gary Ullman, West Palm Beach, Florida